danger is stealing in as relapse hums above the den. It's hard to know if this will be the day when you give in. Give in. Give in. Give in. Hello and welcome to episode 313 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Melrose, Massachusetts, I'm Andrew Brokus. I'll soon be joined by Nate Mavis, Tommy Angelo, and Lee Jones. What a lineup. Tommy and Lee should need no introduction. Uh, Not that Nate needs an introduction, (laughs) but just in case. Tommy is the author of many poker books, including my personal favorite, Elements of Poker. He first appeared on episode two, and most recently on episode 292, but also quite a few times in between there. Lee Jones was also one of our earliest guests way back on episode 9. Lee's got a deep history in the poker industry. He's worked at Card Runners, Poker Stars, and even Cake Poker. Uh, Tommy and Lee have a new YouTube series they're doing together called Poker Simple. We're going to talk a lot about that and also have some strategy discussion with them. That's coming up real soon. But first, speaking of strategy, lots of big news for you. Weekend Warrior 2 is coming this Friday, Black Friday, November 29th. Weekend Warrior is a series of premium podcasts Nate and I released a few months ago. It's been far and away the most popular product we've ever made, and we have been eager to make more. We've enjoyed making more. And now we have five more hours of deep strategy discussion geared, just like the first series, towards the serious amateur, live, mid-stakes, no-limit hold'em player. What do you need to know? What do you need to work on? What are your leaks? Where do you focus your efforts to stay competitive in 2020 and beyond? We had a lot of fun making Weekend Warrior 2, and we hope you'll enjoy hearing it. That will be available this Friday, November 29th at www.nitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com. If you don't have the original Weekend Warrior yet, now is the time to pick it up. All this week, starting today, running through Monday, December 2nd, we are offering 25% off the entire Thinking Poker store at netcast.com. That's all the premium podcasts, all the books, all of it 25% off, now through Monday, December 2nd. No discount needed. Buy some gifts. Treat yourself. This is your chance to load up. Finally, if cash games aren't your thing... Honestly, Weekend Warrior will still probably be pretty helpful to you, Um, but also you should check out TournamentPokerEdge.com. I've been making videos for them for years, and your subscription will get you access to all my videos, plus hundreds more from the other instructors. Low stakes, mid stakes, high stakes, live, online, whatever tournaments you prefer, there's something for you at TournamentPokerEdge.com. Uh, so, welcoming two former uh, podcast guests to the show, Lee Jones, who goes way, way back, and Tommy Angelo, who uh, you've heard many times on here. But uh, this is the first time we've had the two of you together. So, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
Uh, and part of the reason we've got the two of you together is you've been doing uh, a lot of things in the, in the same room together recently. I, I guess we did talk to uh, Tommy a little bit about this already, but um, so, I mean, I, I just watched the first episode of Poker Simple, and I think you guys have just like a, a great chemistry on the uh, on the air together. I mean, it, it helps that I like you both. Maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's very enjoyable to uh, to watch you two have fun together. Well, it's unfortunate that we're just on audio because Tommy and I are high-fiving each other. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the whole, the whole vibe that you give off on the show. It feels like you two are constantly about to high-five each other. We, we really are. I mean, you know, when that video came out, we were still like in shock about the whole thing and didn't really know what we we're doing. And now we've had nine or 10 of them out and now the editing and everything, uh, we're really having fun making the videos themselves and just adding more stuff besides the recording, just like everything that goes into them. And we had no idea we would continue to be having this much fun after right. this much time. And we should say that the first couple of videos we made, we showed them to our wives and they said words to the effect of, you may not put that material on the internet under any circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of funny. What happened is, uh, we were going to make a video, right? And so we, we record, we talk, we have our notes and everything. And so then we have like, okay, we got five bullet points each. We want to make sure we say. And so then we're talking and we, we record it. And I'd say, well, say it again and say it like this. And I'd say something and Lee would say, oh, blah, blah. So by the time we got done, it was totally scripted. Every single line was, was you know, preconceived, and we are not actors. No. We suck at acting. We, so we are definitely not Meryl Streep. Yeah, so it all sounded really con contrived and fake, and the content was really, really tight, but it wasn't flowing, and it was going to take enormous amounts of time to compose these things. Mm -hmm. And that's when our wives, and our wives looked at it, and they're like, this is terrible, and so we're like, we did it again. And then second time was... Better? Slightly better, slightly less scripted, still not good. But I did it again. I mean, we recorded and edited all the way from the beginning to end. And then we're like, okay, we found our secret, which is we just sit down with two or three bullet points and run the camera, and that's it. And that's why we got, you know, it took those stages, but now we got good chemistry because we're not scripting much. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I hear a lot of Andrews in my history and what you just said. Like, we definitely worked very hard and, and had extensive notes for the first few episodes. But, I mean, the preparation is always valuable. But um, the more we got away from that and, and just prepared to then let it fly, the, the, the better it went. And also, the, the value per hour of preparation also goes way, way, way up. Oh, yeah. yeah. And some some couples if you will can do that yeah. and some can't and you know the thing that i always notice like when i go to see a musical act i always much prefer to see them sort of take chances and just roll with it and see what's going to happen yeah um yeah. and feel like i go to a show and i might as well go home and listen to their record mm -hmm. so it, it just they, they seem to be flowing and, and so far yeah. we're we're happy and, and and I think we're getting positive feedback which we find a little surprising and incredibly gratifying. <laughs> yeah. Again, you're hearing a lot of uh, our history in this. It's a, you <laughs> you described yourself as like a couple and it's it's um 
it's kind of fun to see a pair of people who are near the beginning of their journey in this because like Andrew and I, we got along very well. We were friends when we started this, but now like it's seven plus years down the line. He's one of my dearest friends and he's here we're like living together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like here. He's like hanging out with my kid and like helping me eat a good dinner and like, you know, everybody. And, and it's really, um, it's really worked out well from the friendship perspective too. Um, has has that been part of the pleasure of it for you guys so far? Oh, totally. We've we've always really been good friends, and but wished we spent more time together. Yeah. And and so this is really going about as well as it could. And and we use the word you know married at the beginning. It's like that. It really is that type of commitment, and and also with the same sorts of unknowns. Right. You know, it's like, you know, we're really looking at each other. It's like, okay, if we do this, we're basically committing to each other in a huge way. Do we want to tie the knot? And we're like, yeah, let's yeah, do let's, it. Let's do it. You know, and our wives, you know, the four of us are kind of a, I call it team simple, you know, because we get a lot of feedback from our wives and, and they get along well. So the four of us are, are, are really a good team. That's, that's, that's very good. That's very good. I, I, uh, you know, from the outside, you guys make a sort of like very cute odd couple, like slightly odd couple. I like you both very, very much, but I have the impression uh, Lee owns a lot more suits. Like he's like sort of, <laughs> he's, like, he's like he's like poker corporate in the best way. I mean that in the best way. And Tommy it, feels like the opposite of the, the video that's coming yeah. out in about six hours. Yeah, it's called <laughs> it's called going pro, and that's we set the stage by saying, you know, Lee's never been a pro. I've only been a pro, and now here's. The, it's two drastically different perspectives. I'm trying to visualize what it's like being a poker pro, and Tommy's trying to visualize what it's like having a job. Yes, exactly. There's definitely some of that in, in this mix. Right, I, was, I was curious, Lee, what, what does your No Limit play? Because it, it seems like, at least the, the video that I watched, was, was No Limit focused. I assume a lot of these are, are relatively no limit focused and i think a lot of people are going to know you from your your limit hold'em book what what are your uh, no limit qualifications well, you know what the situation is is that like you have to fish in the pond where they're biting right right and no limit hold'em took over the world and i was there for that and it just it just became clear that that was going to be the direction that things went and the only people that are left playing limit hold them anymore are all the crushers and so you know so i learned to play no limit and i basically you should go to national harbor sometime and let me know if you still have that opinion but oh really <laughs> you should go to national harbor like two years ago i don't know if you oh. can still do it now but <laughs> there, i'm not a very good limit hold'em player and i used to play the 6120 limit there really well yeah. you know my mom lives in gaithersburg so I'm, I, I may have to need an excuse to go down. <laughs> and it, it's worth checking out anyway, just as a, a, a poker, a person in the poker world. I mean, it's probably one of the nicer poker rooms in the country. Oh, right? I'd be down there. I just haven't. I oh, haven't, you haven't played the limit hold'em. Okay. 20 limit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know what it was really for me, the big breakthrough was um, Ed Miller's book, um, The Course. And I was I was sort of like getting by playing No Limit just by not being bad, you know. And then I read the course and I was like, okay, now I'm better than bad. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, that was that was my 
that was, I want to say that was my first step up the rung. And the next rung up was, um, I really feel that since I've read Play Optimal Poker, um, <laughs> I've got another step up the ladder. That's awesome. Thank you. I wish you could see me. I'm holding my copy. He's holding his I keep my copy on my, <laughs> on my Android phone. Um, and But yeah, I, I mean, it's just like No Limit has, for better or worse, swallowed the game. So that's what we're talking about. It and yeah, I'm I'm quite comfortable. I mean, that's that's what I've been playing pretty much yeah. exclusively for the last. Guess where Lee's playing all his poker now? The Oaks. Well, oh, they really? yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I knew the answer. Though. Yeah, so Lee's living like you know two miles from the Oaks now, and okay, uh, so that's why you guys are able to get together all the time to do this. Yeah, yeah. He lives. Yeah, he lives very close by. Um, so that's part of the thing that's just worked out wonderfully about this whole thing. We used to live in the Bay Area, and that's when we met years ago. Then he lived in Asheville, then Nashville, and now back to the Bay Area. Nice. You guys are uh, you're, you're lucky to live so close to, uh, to a good friend. Mm -hmm. You know what? That's a really good way of putting it. I, I feel extremely blessed to um, be living near Tommy and being able to hang out with him. And um, I will also say that this is that there's family reasons that my wife and I moved back to the Bay Area from Nashville. And we have both of our sons and our daughter-in-law and our granddaughter all in the Bay Area. And if you ever if you have a good relationship with your kids or your parents or whoever it is, I highly recommend it. It's it's really <laughs> cool just getting together for Sunday dinner. Oh, me living nearby. Yeah. 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 That sounds nice. That sounds nice. What did what did your guys' relationship look like during the time when you? So I mean, it, it sounds like you you kind of met and became friends when Lee was in the Bay Area, and then Lee wasn't in the Bay Area for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. How did you guys, or, or did you guys, stay connected during that time? I know the answer to that. Music. So, so we're the type of people that when we see or hear a song and it moves us greatly, we just want to share it with somebody else who will really appreciate it. Yes. And many, many, many times over the years, we've sent each other emails out of the blue that said, you know, watch this Dire Straits lead solo at minute 243. I mean, that, that's basically <laughs> the kind of shit we would pass back and forth. You have, and the thing <laughs> is, is that he got it exactly right. Like when you, when you have this sort of visceral experience at, on, in any kind of artistic endeavor, Mm -hmm. not everybody's going to be able to share the visceral experience. And you want right. to share it with somebody who will totally get it. Right. And who also doesn't mind getting multiple emails about random shit during the day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, yeah, so I love that. Like, I have, a, um, I have a friend now who every, uh, like, around New Year's, he sends out a CD that's just, like, his favorite songs from the year. And he's got really eclectic tastes. For, it's, like, a lot of stuff that I never would have found for a variety. Either it's obscure or it's just, like, a genre that I don't necessarily seek out or whatever. Cool. Um, and it's, like, it's really the only... Like, I'm not really that into like giving or getting gifts. I just don't enjoy it that much. There's not really a whole lot that I like. I, I, I find I'm happier if I try to minimize my wants for the most part. And like this has consistently been the gift that I like most enjoy getting nice. year after year is, is just like music, you know, custom, not curated for me specifically, but just like curated by a person who knows what he's doing. Like it's, yeah. a, it's a very valuable thing. That, yeah, the curating is what makes it all work. It's like, okay, if Lee sends it to me, I want to hear it. Yeah. You know? And same with Tommy. Yeah. So, yeah. So like you say, it is really the curating. 
And quite often, if that person has good taste, they will bring you something that you truly enjoy, that you didn't know that you would truly enjoy. And what a gift that is. Yeah, I, I try to be that for like poker content <laughs> for certain people. You know, I'll try to give people a, you know, a, a heads up, but which I guess is what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's not quite as it's it, it's too instrumental to be. Well, instrumental is a weird word to use, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I feel like it, it's not aesthetic in the same way that uh, that that music is. I feel like the, the pleasure that people derive from it is is more uh, financial. And, yeah, right. Yeah, it's uh, we we have Brad Brad Willis on the show sometimes, and like I feel you know, very Brad, close. I worship the ground that Brad Willis walks on. Right, he he's the best, and like I've talked to him maybe five times in my life, but I feel so close to him. And every time he comes on, I ask him for music recommendations, and it's like, you know, it's like if God somewhat preferred country music, these would be all the songs that God would recommend. And like I listen to them <laughs> over and over again, and it's just like I feel so close to and so grateful for brad you know just because we have this relationship where i say like oh my god you must tell me what's lighting your musical fires these days and he tells me and then it lights my fire and it's awesome that actually reminds me since uh you know he's, he's got his murder etc podcast now what i was going to say back when we were talking about like the the chemistry between hosts of a, of a show whether it's nate and me or, or the two of you guys that when I listen to podcasts with just like a single host, um, mm -hmm. I often find those are better when they're scripted. Like I think a lot of people have trouble monologuing. And even though I monologue when I do the show solo sometimes, I think it often goes better if it is at least somewhat scripted. But um, for podcasts with multiple hosts, like where they're, where they're like talking to each other or whatever, there's nothing that I listen to that's, that's scripted. And I feel like my enjoyment of those shows often has more to do with the, uh, the dynamic between the hosts than it does with the content of the show. I mean, I have to be at least slightly interested in the content, but ultimately mm -hmm. it's the, the kind of genuine in the moment uh, right. interaction between the hosts that's really what makes the show. Do you yeah. know what I just learned? No, go ahead. I... My wife was reading a book by um, Penn Jillette. It turns out that he and Teller don't like each other. Oh, wow. And, you know, and you're just kind of like, imagine the professional discipline that is required for these guys to basically spend every moment to be inextricably linked to each other. Right. For 30 years. For 30 years. Yeah. But they just don't particularly care for each other. I'm like, God, I could never do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> You know, the nice yeah. thing about making like, our videos that's is to the point where I have trouble fully believing it. Like, yeah, 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 it could be exaggerated. But the nice thing about making the videos, and this is um, the thing that one of the things that I was kind of afraid of at the beginning of just like winging it is as a writer, and you know this about me because I send you my stuff all the time, is like I need it to be seen by multiple people and I need to edit it like 800 times and then maybe send it out the door. And so the idea of like doing a just a off the cuff video was a little scary for me, but the beautiful part is we can edit it however yes, we want. Exactly. And so if we have a passage that just doesn't land well or whatever, it's like <clears throat> gone. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get that luxury. You know, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. I guess you could, but you just don't do it. Right. Yeah. And honestly, like there's, some podcasts I listen to that, I mean, I just think it, it takes so much. Like I, I just, I mean, your guys' show look, looks tight, and maybe you, you enjoy doing it, or you're better at it than than I am. But you know, I've I've heard shows that are kind of edited in a in a less professional way, and they just sound like choppy. And you know, if you're listening to like some really high quality uh, This American Life or something that's like heavily edited, but like edited by 
professionals who really know what they're doing. Like, of course, that sounds better. But the amount of you know time and or money that I feel like would go into that is just not a good. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that was a big part of our thing right from the beginning. And you know, because I've been doing projects all along. He has done projects, but not this type. It's like right from the beginning, I was like, we have to get this to where we can produce these in X number of hours. Right. Yeah. yeah. Period. So right from the very beginning, we were, you know, afraid of the editing job. Um, but because we knew we had to get it to where it was manageable, we made it manageable. And now, you know, we both look forward to, to the editing and then it's not too rough. You know, we, we, we basically keep our, our palette small in terms of how many colors we play with in our video. So we don't have that many options. And then we just mix and match and make them fun and slam, you know, slam it together and out it goes. Yeah. So that, that leads into like this fundamental question I have, which is that you guys have done so many projects and you both have so many talents. Like you could have written essays together. You could have done music. You could have done a podcast. You could have done any number of things. You could have written sonnets. Uh, why, why, why video? Wait, I'm making a note. We're going to write some sonnets. Sonnets. I like one in two. Yeah. I, this whole thing is Lee's fault or I give him blame and credit. So why don't you tell him how well, this basically <laughs> um, I left poker stars at the end of last year mm-hmm. and suddenly had a bunch of time on my hands and it was becoming clear that my wife and I were going to be moving from Nashville up back to the Bay Area. And so I just, you know, I was out here, we, you know, visiting the kids. And, and I, you know, said, let's get together for coffee. And I said, you want to do something? And I, I remember sending Tommy a, an email over. We were at my mother-in-law's house. I remember sending him an email mm-hmm. that basically said, what if we did a project together? And I remember telling my wife, well, knowing Tommy, he'll reply quickly and he will reply honestly. So I will know within 24 hours whether we're going to do something or not. And sure enough, he came back and he's, and, and basically the first line was yes. And then it was like, now we just have to figure out what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. And so the way this actually happened. So first of all, when Lee's letter, so isn't it fun when you review these and you get Two different stories about (laughs) no but basically he wrote a letter he says i have this half-baked idea and then when we get together next month i'll have it fully baked and at that time because i'm replying to what you said it was already fully baked (laughs) (laughs) right but but you you asked we could have done essays that was what i was afraid of i was actually afraid that lee was going to propose a writing project and i didn't really think that would work and i could go into why but it doesn't matter and so when Lee came out with the idea of doing videos, I was like, okay, well, that is doable. But the seed was actually that Lee is, uh, you know, I guess fan is the right word of Andrew Nimi and, and the main vloggers, right? And that's part of the pop culture I had not been exposed to yet, okay? So Lee's original idea was some kind of vlog. And when I saw what those guys were doing, I was like, well, I'm really not the type of person who is going to, you know, put up what I had for lunch or, you know, where I'm playing poker, those sort of like slice of life things. I was like, what if we did something like this, but it was content heavy. And that was kind of the, the, the seed was vlog and then, but really real poker content. And 
that's kind of how it started. And then we, we, you know, we had much feedback from Jamin because you know, Lee knows these guys. We've had such great coaching. And what we learned right from the beginning was we were going to have to learn Final Cut Pro which is like a major piece of software. And I looked at it as no different than learning another musical instrument. Right. And so we basically, we, we were going to have to learn that and learn it really well. And, and we did. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I think it is um, all the other people that I can think of anyway, and I'm not real familiar with the, the vlogosphere, but you, know, you mentioned Andrew Nimi and, and you know, the other ones that I can think of are almost all you know, 20 somethings or early 30 somethings. And I know that's probably a lot of the people who are watching those videos, but I also know because folks that I you know, coach or talk to or whatever, like I know there's an audience of 40, 50, 60 year old men who are interested in consuming poker media also. And I mean, you guys are the only ones I know who fit that demographic who are making like poker video content on a regular basis I, there's probably more out there but uh, i mean I, I think you guys are appealing to a part of the poker audience that is um just kind of uh not not directly appealing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know this could segue nicely into a uh uh you know sort of our philosophy of what the heck we're teaching yeah you know not uh, in terms of um you know, there, like you said, there's these underserved populations, let's say, right, in, in the poker world. And one of them, we're finding, we've suspected this was true, but now we're finding out there are a lot of people out there who, who take the game seriously. We call them serious amateurs, playing 1-3 and 2-5 and aspire to move up. And they are inundated with so many types of content and so many different ways to approach the game and all many great teachers but each teacher has their own lens that they see the game through and it's like the over the analytical the more analytical side of poker that you know that your book tries to make palatable that whole method of teaching just sort of lands on deaf ears with some people they just yeah. can't learn that way you yeah. know i'm talking about players no, nobody knows that better than Andrew. <laughs> pardon me Nobody knows that better than Andrew. Well, and, and so to some extent, we sort of, we didn't set out to aim toward those people. It's just natural because that's, you know, you know, GTO is my second poker language, right? I can't just like speak that fluidly. And so we're going to speak poker in a language that is going to naturally speak to the people who haven't either haven't been introduced to the more analytical methods or just can't grab can't get anything from yeah it. one one analogy i would use is that i actually have a copy of bill and jared's book mm -hmm. and like i have a degree in computer science with a minor in mathematics and i have a master's degree in electrical engineering i've been playing poker seriously for 30 years and i could not make it through that book <laughs> I, I, and that has nothing to do with bill or jared or how smart or clear or you know, articulate they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's going to be, there's just going to be different filters of people that are yeah. able to right. accept content. And some people just can't, you know, some people just don't learn from books even. Yeah. And the great thing about the internet or YouTube is just like with your podcast, you put it out there and it's self filtering. The You know, two years later, the people that are listening to you are the people who use, hear your voice and speak to you, you know? So it's really great that there's so many different types of players, there's so many different types of teaching. 
you know, we don't we don't think of anything we're doing as being instead of something else. It's just always like in addition to. Yeah. You know, here's some ideas you might not have tried before. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, you talked about underserved populations. I immodestly believe on right now only anecdotal evidence that Andrew and I do a better job at reaching uh, women and you know, sort of the over 40 crowd than a lot of other poker media uh, does. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that. Like not being sexist pigs is, is a good <laughs> first step here. Uh, right. Uh, given, ha, given the feedback you've gotten, do you also think you're doing well at sort of reaching um, underserved poker populations? It's, it's hard to know at this point. I mean, we're, we're 10 episodes in, right? Yeah. Now, do you mean women? I mean, I mean that's. I, I think women are an underserved poker population. Okay, well, no, well, no argument there. I mean, the, the, so I've heard that uh, it's something like three to five. It, World Series is like three percent women. Estimated maximum five percent in any yeah. given poker room. And so when you look at that, it's like, um, uh, yeah, if it's it's really hard to get any real meaningful data on that. Right. I guess, yeah. yeah. We don't know, but certainly we hope we come across as non-threatening. And I would say one of the linchpins of our um, gestalt, if you will, is that we don't take ourselves too seriously. You just and, use the word gestalt, though. Well, no. Well, but <laughs> Lee's vocabulary is actually one of our little uh, things. <laughs> <laughs> but I used I used it on a thinking poker podcast. I mean, like this is this is you guys have kind of an NPR audience, right? No, we do. We 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 throw out our share of twenty five centers. It's, it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, but yeah, we try not to take ourselves too seriously, and hopefully that become that makes us look less threatening. And you know, and I if we reach more women with this pod with with our videos, you know, I'm. I'm ecstatic about that because it's one of the great, you know, it's, it's one of the great sadnesses for me of the whole, of the whole experience. Yeah. My, my mental image of Lee, uh, not taking himself too seriously is loosening his tie by one inch. It's, uh... <laughs> no, that's funny. You should, you should, that's funny. You should say that because I mean, you knew like to the degree that you knew me at poker stars, right? Yeah. I was, I had a job to do. Yeah. And I was representing the company. Mm -hmm. Of course. And I had to be at least somewhat buttoned down just because yeah. that's what we were, they were paying me to do. Right. Yeah. No, and of course. And, and we, we, the, the two of us actually worked together at Card Runners way back in the day also. Yeah. Oh. That's true. That was me. I'm going to hear this next that thing. Was, that was, well, I would just say that <laughs> away from the poker stars world, I really don't take myself too seriously, you know? Yeah. So. It, it's really not that hard and, and it's just much more fun, right? I mean, you, yeah. you just don't have to try to keep up a, some kind of facade of being hip and cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can confirm that we played some Omaha together at, at the PCA once you were, you were a chill guy. You were good company. Oh, Lee's a lot of fun. So wait a minute. That would have been exactly 2011. Yep. Wow. Yeah. It was good times. It was good times. I was there. Wow. Uh, yeah. I remember the conversation that we had. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Wow. Well, listen, at some point in this podcast, if you guys don't have specific questions or something, I, I would love to turn the mic around because I have some questions. Absolutely. <laughs> you, 
<laughs> Leah's really been looking forward to uh, asking some. I've got questions. Can, can you all take questions? Yeah, absolutely. Bring it. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, the debt avoidance game. Yeah, uh, from, from, from uh, Play Optimal oh. Poker. From Play yes. Optimal Poker. It, for people that are, haven't cracked open the book yet, one, crack open the book. Early in the game, there's a debt avoidance game, and basically, um, Nate owes uh, Andrew a hundred dollars. And no, I, I didn't use our names, <laughs> <laughs> but basically, um, if, well, use the actual names. I'm, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's not. Um, oh, okay. I don't remember who the names are. Okay. That's why I use names I could think of. But okay. basically, um, if if Nate owes Andrew a hundred dollars, they're both going to play poker in uh -huh. the Baltimore area. Well, Andrew is either going to go to the horseshoe or he's going to go to Maryland Live. Nate wants to avoid him. Okay. Right? The equilibrium strategy is for each of them to flip a coin. And that Just way... Randomize it every time. Randomize it every time. Right. And that way, Nate maximizes his chances of avoiding um, Andrew. And Andrew maximizes his boys of maximizes his chances of catching Nate and getting his 100 bucks. Got it. But he points out that the... So here is the question that I have. If... Andrew has a 51% chance of going to Maryland Live, mm -hmm. then Nate should do nothing more than go to Maryland Live every single time, right? I should go to the other one. I should go to the other one, yeah, the horseshoe 100%. Go to horseshoe. Right, right. 100% of the time. Yes. Okay. Here is the poker question I have. If, the, if an opponent comes from a supply of players – that doesn't bluff enough and they don't make thin value bets enough on the river, does that mean that we should fold all bluff catchers? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Even, even if, if they deviate only a little teeny bit. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> you, you, uh, so if you listen to the archives of this show, you'll get a lot of those. We even have a hashtag or we even have like a, a line about this. Andrew's line. It's not really mine. It's Andrew's. It's they always have it. And, and the things that you should fold if they always have it. But always doesn't mean always. Always means just a little bit too much. Just a little bit too much. Because at equilibrium, those calls with your bluff catchers are zero EV. And as soon as your opponent is bluffing even just a little bit, not enough, then they, they, they go to zero. You, should, you can just fold them all. They always have it means they have it just a little bit more than they should. And you can fold all your bluff catchers. So the interesting thing is, is that I don't like your hashtag because it pushes people in the wrong direction because they say, well, I've seen him bluff. Yeah. That, that, that's why we explain it. <laughs> but the, this is hashtags aren't about nuance. Lee. <laughs> but I am so excited about this because I'm, I'm involved in a hand discussion group where I see, you know, somebody's describing a hand in one, two and wait, wait, let me tell you, can, can I just do this hand? Do it. Yes. Yes. No? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so it's a one-two <laughs> game, and our hero is in the small blind with ace-jack offsuit. Now we don't have to record a separate strategy segment. This is great. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's um, three limbs to him. Wait, and say it again. It's a one-two game, okay. 200 effective. He's okay. in the small blind with ace-jack offsuit. There's okay. three limbs to him. He makes it 12 in the small blind. Now, I think that's a mistake. What? <laughs> no, it, it's, I, I was about to say good. But, uh, but, 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 but that's not the point, right? That's not the point here. Okay. Okay. Um, so, uh, they all call and Todd, I mean, one of these days on another strategy segment, we can discuss whether you should be, um, you know, 
choosing to raise unnecessarily here out of small blind, but whatever. So the flop is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, jack of spades, 10 of clubs, three of diamonds. He has the ace of spades. I mean, there's no, he has no flush chances. Let's just put it that way. Um, so he flops top pair on a, on a rainbow board. Yeah. Stack to pot ratio is about four. Um, what'd you say, Nate? The stack to pot ratio is roughly four. Um, yes, that's right. He bets $22. Only the hijack calls. And I'm thinking, okay, after, and I, and I literally have Andrew's book like sitting next to me as I'm reading about this. Nice. And I'm thinking, great, he's got a polarized range here because he's the one that did the raising. And so, yeah, he bets. Great. Um, the turn is a 10 of diamonds, so that pairs the second card. And um, he chooses to check. Now, interestingly, my typical advice to people in situations like this is bet fold. But this is kind of a classic, the table's just turned card. Is that correct? Yeah, the middle or bottom card pairing tends to be uh, a really significant board texture change that is not in favor of the player who was the previous aggressor. Right, that's right. what I thought. Right. So, so he checks, and the villain bets 35. And let's see, the pot is like probably 90 at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. yeah. Yep. So the villain does 35 into 90, and the hero calls, which seems reasonable. I mean, yes, no? Yeah. I mean, the, so the way that I would break this down is I would say if, if we thought this is a pure bluff catcher, like either he's bluffing or he has trips, then I would probably just fold on the don't pay them off principle. But I yep. think it's not a pure bluff catcher. I, I think there's some chance that he has, say, a worse jack or maybe even a pocket pair, and he's just sort of... Like because it's a small bet, I think he doesn't have to be so polarized, and um, he can be betting some hands for some combination of sort of like value and protection. Or I kind of think of it as like a uh, an advanced blocking bet where he's he's betting now so he can check back the river. Um, and because we can beat those hands, that would be my main reason for calling. Uh, also, two two more points: uh, the small blind bet small on the flop with Ace Jack and left awkward stacks for a raise. That makes it a little more likely that. The, the villain who's now betting the turn could have gotten to the turn with a straight draw instead of having raised with it on the flop. Had had Hero bet larger or, or maybe even smaller on the flop, I, I would discount the straight draws a little bit uh, because it would have been a little bit tougher to raise, at least sometimes. And second, like especially in a 1-2 game, it doesn't make any sense for a villain to have like pocket sevens here, but I've seen pocket sevens like a million times, yeah. and I would never ever fold to this bet, but I also wouldn't raise. So I think calling is good. Okay. So now the river is, uh, and by the way, the, the, the 10 of diamonds picked up a, di a backdoor diamond draw, okay? River is the eight of hearts, hero checks, villain bets 70. Yeah. yeah this is <laughs> 160. Into 160-ish, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they kind of always have it. You don't. <laughs> I mean, you didn't need to win only like a quarter of the time. It's probably a crying call because there's an outside chance Habit could still be like a hand that you chop with or maybe even a hand that you beat, but it, it's definitely not a like very profitable call. Yeah. It's Okay, so it was really interesting because the, um, the pros in the hand discussion group, and these guys are good, okay? I mean, they know what they're doing. They were like, ah, you're getting three point something to one, uh -huh. you know? 
top pair, top kicker, you know, Miss Diamonds, yeah. you know, Miss King Queen, blah, right. blah, blah. And I'm going like $70 in a one-two pot, in, in a one-two game. Yeah. That's a legit bet. And I just, I was just really like, to me, this, this is going back to the debt avoidance game or, or they always have it or whatever. Well, yeah. And then you kind of combine it with the size of the term bet. So the story could be, he did hit the 10 and he was just going for this, you know, suction play. Yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, that it, it, it almost sounds like the Tom hand rule, doesn't it? Yeah. Passive, passive, aggressive. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Well, what you it, it's not that though, because it was he was aggressive as soon as you started checking. Like I think this is the the kind of spot where people will find the appropriate bluffs. Um, I think it would be had this action been check call flop, check call turn, lead river, then that would be passive passive aggressive, and I would say that's a good deal more suspicious. I think this is one of those spots where. You can kind of ask yourself, like, what else would he do with King Queen? Like, assuming that he's limp calling it in the first place, which is very plausible. Um, okay, it's pretty plausible that he calls the flop with it. When you check the turn, he, you know, he's betting because he wants you to fold and because he's got an open-ended straight draw. And then on the river, he misses. He can't win again by checking. But your line still looks so, like I, I think this is one of the spots where they do actually bluff at a sufficient frequency yeah. just because it's so easy to find 16 combinations of uh, very reasonable bluffing hands combined with the, the outside chance that he actually is just betting like ace-jack or king-jack, which doesn't seem completely unreasonable to me either. And the hero could very easily just have ace-king or ace-queen yeah. You know, and and have the let's say the other whatever, you know, the king queen beat. And so the guy feels he has reasonable fold equity because he suspects that the hero has no pair. Yeah. The the larger the bet, the more willing I am to apply the, the they always have it rule. And and Lee, I I do understand your argument that like uh, the one two player is not super pot pot size aware and seventy it feels like a large bet to him. And he's not um, counting 16 combos of value hands. And no, but, uh, but he, doesn't, he doesn't need to. I'm, I'm just saying from his perspective, he just knows he missed a draw and he can't win by checking. Um, right. I, he doesn't need to be counting combos. We're the ones who need to be counting combos. And <laughs> I think like the, the they always have it rule assumes that bluffs are sort of hard to find. And in this case, the bluffs are like very obvious. And the line that you've taken has really encouraged a, a bluff. Like this right. is the sort of spot where I'd be less inclined to apply the, well, the always have it rule. That's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, a big part of my game is based around anticipation. And when, when I when I call the $30 bet on the turn, I'm I'm pretty much decided that whether I'm going to call the river bet or not, almost independent of the card that comes up. I know that's a little crazy, but in my mind, I already have an idea. Like if a total blank comes up and I check and the guy bets, I've already decided. I think that's kind of healthy sometimes at least for me no it, it definitely is and i think it is actually okay to be relatively independent because most cards aren't going to be that significant i think it should be dependent on the size of the bet though like if this is a 120 dollars okay. bet i'm probably folding um so yeah. i think like you, you can have a rough sense of like what size bet you're ready to call yeah yeah, yeah like i think totally i i often get myself into a situation where i'm thinking okay i'm calling x more than x it's his pawn. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah yeah it's um it makes me smile always to hear Tommy say something like that because, like, this happens to me maybe once a session, often more, where there, these spots will come up 
and I know just enough about my opponent, and it's especially on a dry texture, and the flop comes, and like it could turn into a pot, and the other guy bets, and I say, okay, it's time to start playing the river. And oh yeah, this, and this is like you know based on some posts that you wrote like literally right. over a decade ago now, <laughs> and it's yeah, uh, they, they, the they, they served me very well. Yeah, sometimes. So um, this has been a really uh, amusing conversation to listen to because I probably would just fold before the flop and save all the trouble. <laughs> fold for a dollar with the ace jack? Uh, it, yeah, I might. Um, I wrote an article, uh, my shortest article ever. The title is How to Play the Small Blind. <laughs> did you see this one? Yes, I did. Yeah, I have seen that. Like it's it. a one-word essay. And it just says don't period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well this this has been great. I have can I have a, can I ask another question? Yes, but first can I praise you for like I think we have a slight disagreement on that river, but like I really do think you're on the right track and I think you're supposed to at least consider folding and and I don't want to make it sound like I really disagree with you there, so I I, I want to explicitly praise you for for uh considering folding in fact, advocating it as seriously as you do. But now, please, another hand. Okay, well, this, no, this is from this is from another thing from the book. Andrew describes a hand where he opens $15, queen jack suited in early position, big blind calls, flop is, um, it is queen jack of hearts, big blind calls, flop is king of hearts, nine of diamonds, three of clubs. Um, so we, we have gut shot, backdoor flush. Um, Big one checks, we bet 15. Um, okay, she calls. T t time to start playing the river. <laughs> the, the, turn, the turn is the ace of spades, and she checks, and Andrew's line is, and I'm quoting from the book, bet big, really big, like two times the pot. Wow. And I love this. This is great. <laughs> Can you, like, when, when, like, if Tommy and I do a video about this or I'm discussing, is there some way to generalize or – how to take this to people without them having to make it through two thirds of your book. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I I'm still inclined to throw a little bit of jargon in here and I'll leave it to you guys, whether or not you want to eliminate that. But the central thing we're looking at here is an opponent with a, a capped range, meaning yeah. it's very plausible for us to have extremely strong hands as the preflop razor pocket yes. aces, pocket Kings, ace King, um, and then also even like flop sets, we have to think there's at least a chance the opponent would want to check raise those. So the fact that the opponent didn't three bet us before the flop and didn't check raise the flop, everything and and the the turn card is not a card that completes any draws. So it's not like the turn could suddenly give her a straight or a flush that she didn't have on the flop. Um, you know, at, at best the turn is giving her. I mean, there's an outside chance it gives her two pair, but like maybe it's just giving her. She's still just going to have one pair if she paired the ace. Mm -hmm. So you know, the situation you're running into is your opponent, through the actions that she's taken, has essentially told you she doesn't have anything better than one pair. You can very easily have a hand better than one pair. And mm -hmm. although her pair might be pretty good and it could be hard to get her to fold it for you know the kinds of bets that many 1-2 players or 2-5 players tend to make, which are like half the pot, um, there's a lot of money still left to be played for you know there's 470 dollars in the effective stacks right now so we want to apply all of that pressure we don't want to just apply like half the pot's worth of pressure you know half the pot is how we get the opponent off of third pair fourth pair under pairs unpaired hands if we're trying to get people off of strong hands you know, a lot of people complain at two five oh nobody ever folds you can't bluff these guys they never fold 
I mean, part of the reason they're not folding is because you're only betting half the pot. Like, if you can identify these situations where you're sure your opponent doesn't have more than one pair, or damn near sure they don't have better than one pair, uh, then overbetting is is a tool for applying maximum pressure in those situations. So, do you ever bet t- two times the pot there with a with uh, as a non bluff? Yeah, it, with with a would. So, if you had a set of kings, you'd do the same thing, right? I'd be even more inclined to do it if I had a set of nines. Um, blocking the king is yeah, a little un- so. Sure. But uh, yeah. So and and th- there's also the question of how exploitative do you want to be. So if I'm playing against like uh, a GTO robot, then yes, I'm also overbetting the turn here with my very strongest hands. If I'm playing against a fair number of two five players who I think might just fold too much to an overbet, if you decide you want to be really exploitative about it. You could just, you know, overbet with your bluffs and not overbet with your strong hands. What I think does not make sense is to never overbet. So, like, this is definitely a good situation to overbet some sort of hand. You can do one of three things. You can decide my opponent is ridiculously loose and doesn't pay attention to bet sizes at all and is just going to pay off anything, in which case you should overbet your strong hands but not your bluffs. You could say that my opponent is going to be sort of blown away and intimidated by a big overbet and is going to fold way too much to it, in which case you want to overbet your bluffs, but not your value hands. Or you could say, I have no idea how my opponent's going to respond to an overbet. I'm not comfortable making an assumption one way or the other. And in that case, the best thing to do is to overbet some combination of both in in a you know, roughly balanced fashion, the best that you can approximate in game. What I think is not, uh, what is definitively a lower EV strategy than one of those three things is never overbetting any sort of hand. Like that, that last has to be a mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you're not comfortable making an assumption about what kind of hand to overbet, you should just overbet a balanced range. You know, I have noticed, like, there is a kind of opponent, and it's like the ace, if you do have a big hand, there are some people that will never fold an ace. Yes. At that point. Right. And they will call a two-times pot bet. Mm -hmm. And if you can spot them, I mean, it's gold. And I was just like, I was just like cackling when I read this and kind of understood (laughs) it. Right. Because I thought against those people... Now, of course, the problem is, is that if you're trying to bluff those people, you're throwing away money. Well, you don't do that. But yeah, but they unless they don't have an ace, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is the question of how how plausibly because there wasn't an ace on the flop. So, you know, in order for them to have an ace in their hand, they have to have either called the flop without a pair. Or they have, and they probably don't have ace king since they didn't re-raise before the flop. So, you know, there's only so many ways for them if, if they have an ace plus a card that paired the board then we're starting to look at you know that's a, a pretty small chunk of their range if that's the only way they could have an ace right. but i think with a 15 dollar bet it's not that implausible that they you, the flop did get peeled by you know, ace queen ace jack ace 10 right okay i just have one more question and then i'll then i'll uh yield the floor um because this is this is i've just been so excited to talk to you guys this is great quoting from your book if you know your opponent calls too much with bluff catchers then you no longer need to worry about bluffing. I mean, that's a sentence. Is this the debt avoidance game? If your opponents call too much, if they are calling stations, mm-hmm. is it correct to just literally give up bluffing them? Damn near. I mean, there might be one or two exceptions where like, the, the bluff is such a high... Like, if you had a really significant blocker or something, it could be such a high-value bluff that it's good, even against people who call way too much. But, I mean, yeah, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a pretty safe yeah. thing to say, just don't try to bluff someone who you think calls too much. 
for what it's worth, back when I was grinding No Limit in games that were soft all the time, there were plenty of days went by that I never bluffed once. Sure. And so if we say to somebody who, you know, is a a novice player or a struggling player or, you know, an infrequent player who just does, you know, if we say, do you know what? Don't bluff. Come back to us in 90 days <laughs> yeah. and we'll discuss. Yeah. But for the next 90 days, yeah. do nothing but value bet. I, I think that's definitely good for the river. Um, on earlier streets, I guess I, I should qualify a little bit more. Like what counts? Yeah, right. and I meant to call Sorry. If you have a flush draw or an open-ended straight yeah. draw on the flop, yeah, you know, those bluffs are not designed. Like when you see bet the flop, that's not a bluff that's designed to make your opponent fold some kind of good hand. That's a right. that's a bet that's designed to make your opponent fold a hand that, from his perspective, is is a nothing hand. And yeah, so let's just talk river bluff ahead of yours. It might just be a hand that's live against yours. You know, mostly you don't want to try to make those players fold good hands, right? Or even, for that matter, even made them fold top pair. Right, yeah, that that's kind of what I mean by good hand, as opposed to great hand. Like no one folds great hands. Um, mm-hmm. Weaker players or, or the, a certain kind of calling station doesn't fold good hands against better players. Like I think there's a lot of players at two five where like you make a good amount of money taking them off of good hands, especially now that more two five games are starting to be thousand dollar buy-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people who you know they're they're just sort of very tight, and this is the way that they are like small winners in two five is they're just like extremely tight. They don't pay off ever, and then they sometimes cooler people who who are calling stations and against those players you know taking them off of hands like top pair is kind of a bread and butter move uh but then there's other people where you know i would never try to take them off the top pair okay i'm, I'm sorry hey. I, I keep i keep interrupting nate but i, I want to give him <laughs> i mean i jump in yeah i would just say two things like one i think so in my game i i went years never bluffing enough and now i'm starting to bluff a bit more with like tremendous success uh i mean i think um, a lot of people, certainly previous versions of myself included, uh, overestimated how many of my small stakes opponents really were over calling, like calling too much on the river. So um, I would just caution your hypothetical student not to make that mistake. And if you gave that person the 90 days of advice, like it could help their results in that time. I worry it would hamper their long term progress. Like it can have a nice, side where like it, it can give them the mental energy to focus on other things and it can cultivate discipline and that's all great but um you know it's 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 up to you guys as as educators to figure out whether that would be good in terms of their long-term development and third and possibly most importantly instead of they always have it how do you feel about if you move an inch i move a mile i love that that's that's exactly correct if you move an inch what's it mean it means that if you're it means that if andrew shows up at maryland live 51 percent of the time Uh then nate goes to the horseshoe 100 percent. oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah 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 Yeah. and if somebody's bluffing just a little bit too much then you call with all your bluff catchers and if they're bluffing just a little bit too little yeah that's better Right. You fold all your bluff cases. Right. And I, I'm, you know, when you guys say these things, it's natural for me to try to see, you know, is that what I do and whatever. And it's like, yeah, if I'm playing against somebody, let's say I've got an ace and I flop an ace and I'm out of position and I check, I'm going, I'm going to showdown no matter what against this guy. I'm just going to check call every street or whatever. Right. And that's kind of what you're saying. It's like, I'm not going to try to figure out if he's bluffing this time. 
Mm-hmm. I know he bluffs too much in general, and I just call him down. Right. Right. And but I think particularly for low stakes players against a against a passive field, you know, there's like they just quite often the low stakes players don't bluff enough. Right. Well, that's yeah. And we're basically on the river, on that. particularly right, on the river. The yeah. point being that if they don't bluff enough on the river, even if it's a little bit yeah. not enough, right? Then your correction is to never call with bluff catchers, not right. to try to look for blockers, anything yeah, yeah, like yeah. that, just to go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a bluff I catcher. It. I fall. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think as broad advice, that that's good, and I think broad advice is a reasonable thing to give beginning players. Um, I, I share Nate's concern that like, I, I mean, I've just, I've worked with so many students who have these rules for themselves that like, once they decide they want to get more serious at poker, if they've been amateur players for, you know, 15 years and they've just like, they're so locked into these rules. And then at some point they decide like, I want to take this game more seriously. Like I really spend a lot of time trying, I mean, in some part of the problem is like some of those rules were never correct. <laughs> um, and part of the problem is that they're just, they're very broad rules. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean it's 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 good for for pretty amateurish players, and the more that someone has aspirations of getting better, um, the more I, I'm afraid that like giving them really rigid rules hampers I, that. Yeah, I'm it, not suggesting for a moment that these are rigid rules. I'm, you know, quite often I'm talking to people, and I think we are all that Tommy and I are being watched by people who are, you know probably not beating the game mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, and they're, they're just constantly frustrated. And yeah, I, I think for those people like folding, I mean, folding more in general, I mean, that, that's a pretty good tummy. Yeah. Like, they probably need to fold more preflop also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, I got a question that just came to mind and this is something that's come up a few times recently with some of my clients. My question is how much thinking do you do during the hand, like on the flop and turn. By thinking, I mean, do you actually have the ideas of combos and things, you know, in the moment, you bet the guy raises, are you, um, and the reason I bring this up is because I've been talking to some guys about, you know, flow and the non-thinking state that athletes and musicians get in. And over the years, I have, you know, because I've done so much meditating at the table and, you know, developed this, uh, this mindset that I, and I've always played very, very fast, that I'd make all my plays really, really fast. And I realize that it's like, um, I'm anticipating everything, but I'm actually not thinking at all. And now I realize it's like, I, uh, maybe that's a good thing. You know, it, for me, it just happened naturally. But sometimes I'm wondering, like when I'm coaching a really experienced player and they, we talked about GTO stuff and they're like, okay, it's on the turn, blah, blah, blah. And I read this book and blah, blah, blah. And I want to know you, Andrew and Nate, when you're playing, when it's on the turn and on the flop, how much, how would you define your thinking? What do you think your mind is doing? I mean, so Andrew and I have talked about this a lot lately. Um, Nickcast.com, we have these Weekend Warrior podcast series. So I'm a working stiff now. I'm a software engineer. And I think a lot during the hands. And a lot of what we talk about in those series is like exactly where it's productive to spend your your mental energy. So especially from the perspective of like a, a, like a Weekend Warrior. I'm a, I'm a software engineer who plays poker on the side. 
I've mm-hmm. played a lot more than most people in my spot, and I probably play a little better than a lot of them. But um, it's one thing that we've talked about a lot is like, what do you do when you don't have muscle memory or when your muscle memory was formed during a time when game conditions are different from what they are now? So like, I think, I think it's really, really tricky. And I think um, you have to be a good coach to yourself and know when to trust your body, so to speak, know when to trust your instincts and know when to not to. And uh, I'm not sure there's a hard and fast rule for it. I think if you do feel in flow, then, then you should trust yourself. Um, I think the obvious thing to say is that for things that sort of active conscious thinking can't as easily reveal, like, is this person bluffing right now? That's a great time to, to sort of, if you feel in flow and feel like you have a strong view about that, um, in some sort of non-rational or only quasi-rational way, that's a good time to trust it. Me as a, as a recreational, you know, part-time player, I find it invaluable to say, okay, what does this person actually have? What if an ace comes on the turn? What if this card pairs? Uh, what are the stacks? Are stacks in play? If I want to get stacks in play, how do I do it? I what do all of that. Hey, I do everything you just said, though. Yeah. Without thinking. If you can do that, great. If you can do that, great. I, I, I think a lot of our listeners cannot. Okay. And I also think that those things can... Um, you know, in computers, we would call this like model skew, where you train your model on some data, and then over time, user behavior changes, and the model just hums along, but but the environment is different, so the reactions don't don't yeah. fit anymore, and, and I'm worried about that. And if you can do all that, then that's great, and I think a lot of truly great players do that. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the con- I just remembered the context where one of my clients brought it up was... Uh, well, here's a phrase I learned from uh, Zach Resnick, who also lives in Berkeley now, and we hang out together. He, you know, you can optimize for various things. Yeah. You know, you, are you optimizing for this, optimizing for that? What if you're optimizing for enjoyment? Yeah. Where does the thinking come in? That was the question the guy brought to me. I'm like, wow. You know, because he's like, yeah, I can do all this thinking, but I'm, I have more fun if I don't. It's like, That's- I don't know, it's just an interesting thing. Yeah, I think most people I talk to, and certainly myself, it's like actually the opposite. It's like, uh-huh. I mean, especially if they might not be winning players, like, I don't know. Like, if you're playing anywhere near well, you aren't playing that many hands. It's like you wait 20 minutes for a hand, you get in the flop, then like, like you drive to the casino, sit in the game, <laughs> wait 20 minutes to play a hand. It's like, well, thinking about it wouldn't be any fun now, would it? Like, I don't, like, <laughs> that, that's something I don't understand. It's not like, yeah. Okay, that's a good point. I, I will say I, I try not to play favorites among my students, but I, I do have a favorite student right now. And the main reason he's my favorite student is because he's way more honest with himself than um, any of my other students are. So like one of the battles that I often have with people is about set mining. I think most people overestimate the profitability of like calling a small parish, just trying to flop sets. And I think part of the reason they do it is that it's a very appealing a sort of a, for the same reason that lottery tickets are appealing. You know, like if you're just paying three big blinds to see a flop, you can mentally just like round that down to zero. And like it's fun to win big pots and sets do create the conditions to win a big pot. So people feel like they're risking a little to win a lot and they're not interested in doing like the exact math of like, well, just how little and just how much are you going to win and, and all that kind of thing. So I'm often trying to like convince my students that they're set mining too much and in spots where it's not profitable. 
So I had the conversation with with this person, and uh, it was like I I just don't think you should be open raising like pocket twos under the gun. Um, and so he comes back to me the next week, and he's, he tells me, you know, I thought about what you said, and I decided even if it's a little bit unprofitable, like, I play poker for fun and I enjoy set money. I'm like, great, more power to you as long as yeah. you understand. Like if you say yeah. I understand, I'm giving up some money, but this is fun for me and I play for fun. That's, yeah. that's fine. I just yeah. I feel like my job as a coach, if you're paying me to help you get better at poker and you tell uh-huh. me you think this is profitable and I don't think it's profitable, like I need to right. tell you. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. You know, I got a question. I got a set mine question for you then. Um, it's just I, I feel the same way that if it's just pure set mining, it, it's like kind of a break even sort of proposition. Uh, that's even if the stacks are the right size and everything. But what if every time you went in with a small pair and the pot came down immediately to heads up, you had no intention of just check folding when you missed. What if you're planning to actually make a, you know, make some kind of stand on this hand? Um, do you think, and, and let's say you were able to do that well, would that be enough to tip the scales toward, yeah, you probably should see, see the flop with sets. I mean, with pairs. I mean, I'll give you the easy poker answer of it depends. Like, I think that the, the key is just it, it should it's not an automatic decision. And, and you're right that that's that's the question is, are you going to be able to find some additional value? It doesn't have to be a lot more. Um, right. I think, you know, if we're talking about so like being in position is a huge help here. Right? right. Trying to figure out whether pocket threes are good on a king eight five board. You know, being in position makes it a lot easier for you to keep the pot small, get to showdown, maybe squeeze mm-hmm. in a protection bet at some point, or you know, not not get bluffed off of your hand. Being out of position, even when your opponent is weak, that's just a really hard thing to do. Which is why you know, I like I open all the pocket pairs on the button if it folds to me. You know, I don't open small pairs under the gun in games that I consider tough, and I don't advise to other people. You know, raked pots make it harder. If you're playing in a time game, it's a little uh, easier to to do those kinds of things. But you know, it, it's not purely a question of your intention. It's also a question of how you know, realistically how well are you going to be able to execute on those things that the bigger your pair is, the easier it is to win a pot with it unimproved. Uh, like I said, being in position helps uh, a heads up pot certainly helps. And then, you know, the more of a read you have on your opponent, if you know, your opponent is very passive, you're going to make better decisions. When he checks, you're going to feel good about, you know, thinking your hand is good. And when he bets in particular, you don't have to worry about getting bluffed. You can just kind of say, he probably just has it and, and I can fold. And the flip side of that is because he's not doing very much bluffing, you're going to win more pots than you quote should when you have the best hand, but a better player would have would have bet you off of it. And the more you're playing against tough opponents, they're not going to make it easy for you to show down under pairs to the board, which are notoriously very difficult hands to to realize equity with if they're not sets. Good. So you know, we really appreciate you uh, letting us interview you. <laughs> I, I just have one more question so far. Um, so. When you when people talk about what pairs to play under the gun in the early seats, you know, oftentimes I'll see suggestions that say, you know, go down to eights or sevens or sixes, but stop somewhere before deuces, threes, and fours. Okay. In my mind, I'm always I've always thought like the difference between sevens and sixes or the sixes and fives or fives and fours, how can that difference be so huge that it makes the difference between playing a hand or not, which is the biggest decision of all? back to you <laughs> you move an inch i move a mile i mean so when we're when we're talking about opening under like and from any position like the worst hands that you're raising 
um, are going to be only slightly better than folding. Right? If, if you think about, like, yeah. I mean, actually, I mean, there's software that does this. If you imagine a right. grid of, like, all your opening hands, Pocket Aces is an extremely profitable open for many position. And then, you know, if we're looking at a grid of your under-the-gun opens, it, it should just be a scale all the way down to, like, the very worst hands you're opening under the gun are worth, like, 0.01 big blinds. And maybe you, for variant introduction reasons or whatever, just choose to fold those, which is fine. So then, like, your your threshold is I want to be making at least, I don't know, 0.03 big blinds per 100 before I open. Or, you know, some, somewhere, even if you wouldn't express it in those terms, right. you have that cut off in your head. Right. And you're right. Like, there's a very small difference between sevens and sixes, but it's the difference between slightly above that threshold okay. and slightly that below that threshold. Like, that, that straddles the threshold. Okay. Thank you. And actually, I want to take since, since, since you guys, you guys, yeah. <laughs> we're done interviewing you. What was the purpose of this con? You don't, you don't have to be. It's uh, uh, you know, I, I've really enjoyed episode one of you move an inch, I move a mile, the Lee Jones and Tommy Angelo podcast. This is great, and it's it's been a tremendous honor that you had Andrew and I on as your first guest. This is fantastic. This is- <laughs> You know what we should do is take this recording and send it to our editing booth and see what kind of <laughs> manipulations no, we can. This is no. I just like I've I've just been so excited to talk to you guys on the on the back of the book. So th- this is yeah been truly amazing for me. And you know Tommy and I are are both just like we are just learning to speak our first sentences of of theoretical poker and. So it's really exciting to be talking to the the fluent masters. So thank it's, you. It's very kind of you. It's very kind of you. I will say, and this podcast does have the explicit tag. You know, I mean, you guys are both complete fucking legends uh, in in my book, and it's uh, it's really cool that that you know we can talk to you guys and and maybe even help you out a little bit. And and for me to be, you know, seven years into the project and and uh, saying like, oh, Leon, it's. Uh, me and Tommy, they're just starting out. It's a bit surreal to me. <laughs> well, it is, it is kind of scary because uh, you may, you probably don't know this, but Tommy and I share a birthday. Um, I, and I, I, am a, I am 62 years old. Tommy is 61 to the day. Um, wait. wait is, we are, not, we're, no. born, we're both born on August 25th is what he meant. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. Um, yeah. But the thing is, is that it, it, not very many people strike off onto something relatively new and different like this at this age Um, good for you well you know i all i everything all the research indicates that the the more you use your brain the longer it lasts and so this this is just yet another that can be yeah people ask us why we're doing these videos and we could just say well it's to hold off all signs right exactly I, I was going to say a while ago, and, and Nate and I have, I mean, sort of joked about this, but it's not really a joke that like men, especially as they get older, are not great at maintaining like social networks and social relationships. And like, I have a lot of people that I'm friends with, but I don't talk to them regularly. And like having a built-in scheduled time, both to talk to Nate, but also to you know meet new people or talk to old friends like Tommy. Just like forcing myself to do that on a regular basis, I think is is probably pretty healthy for me. I'm sure. You know, I hadn't even thought about that, but I yeah. am sure you are a hundred percent correct, and it is super healthy for your entire existence. Yeah, and like also, I mean, this isn't like. 
this isn't the Dust Bowl here. Like sixty-two and sixty-one, you guys are still young. Like I don't know. Like I, what was his name? Neil something. Who was the November? Ni- yeah, yeah. Neil Blumenfeld. He's like this November niner. He was in his seventies. He's like running marathons. He's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna run this marathon. Then like you know, I'm I'm hanging out in France. I'm dating this French woman. So I, you know, I go over there every so often. Well, he wasn't even the oldest person at that final table. That's what I'm saying. The, the, the Belgian guys in his eighties. Yeah, exactly. So like whatever. I mean, it's not even about doing things. You know, given that you're old, you're not even old. Woohoo! Appreciate it. <laughs> we were worried there for a minute. Yeah. I mean, I also think this is one of the, the cooler. Younger than the trees. There we go. <laughs> Wait, younger than the mountains and older than however that song is. I, I think this is really one of the cooler things about the, the poker world is the um, the amount of interacting that I end up doing with people. Um, from really, I mean, I feel like a lot of the diversity I'm getting is is just. Uh, age or generational diversity. I mean, not that I don't interact with people of different ethnicities or culture or whatever at the poker table that I wouldn't otherwise, but I think that's actually less striking in that context than just you know, the number of people that I'm interacting with and have been interacting since I was in my 20s, people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. I don't think, at least in America, there's a whole lot of spaces for that anymore where uh, you do see people like across generations sitting down and, uh, I mean, in this case, playing a game together. I, I think it's sort of a rare thing, but I think it's extremely common. And you see it all the time in the poker world. And you know, I, mean, I just love seeing that where you're like, how are those two guys friends? Like, what's the story there? Yeah. Like, I, right. I love- that's, that's a really good point. And you know, it's something that I used to sort of celebrate when I worked for poker stars, because basically all of my customers were my son's age. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that was incredibly energizing and, and, just kept me feeling young because I was mm-hmm. around young people all the time. Oh, yeah. And if there was the gender diversity and ethnic diversity in the poker room, that there yeah. is the age diversity, man, that would be glorious. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The diversity is wonderful. And just the celebrations, like that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do a project with Lee because he, I've already always known Lee is like a uh, sort of like a band leader, you know, just he's so enthusiastic about poker all the time. And uh, I knew that that would come across in whatever we did. Well, it's a, it's a real honor to, 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 to talk to you too. It's uh, I hope, I hope you will come back on the show and I, I really hope that you guys keep your thing up as long as Andrew and I have managed to keep this thing up. Wow. Thank you. That's, I mean, <laughs> by the, what episode are we? This is going to be 313. Wow. Oh, so you, you guys are palindromic. Ooh. Yeah, I know are. what that means. That, that, well, it just so happens <laughs> we're releasing 11. Yeah. So we, we are palindromic <laughs> and prime. Oh. Is 313 prime? Probably. It passes Ooh. the divisible by three rule. It does. Five, seven, two, eighty. What's he doing? <laughs> Long pause. I, I should know something about this. It feels wrong. I, I would guess it's not. Really? Yeah. Hey, I hey, guess. Hey. I mean, many more numbers hey, aren't. Hey, 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 Google, is three hundred thirteen prime? According to prime numbers. For 313, the answer is, yes, 313 is a prime <laughs> number because it has only two distinct divisors, one in itself. Ship it. 
right. <laughs> I'm, I'm changing my name to George Jetson. This is crazy. <laughs> you guys, wow. this is such fun. Thank you, man. What, what a joy. And now I know that 313 is prime and palindrome. This is great. <laughs> All right. Good talking to you guys. Good luck. Let's, let's, let's hang out some more time. Actually over a beer or something, you know? Oh, yeah. And just, just let me get this out there because I just did the search. If you search for poker simple with two words, you won't see us anywhere. If you search for poker simple with one word, that's all you need We're to do. We're all over. Yeah. So please, please come see us on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll get a link in the, in the show notes. I guess I'll, I'll link to your first episode in the show notes, and then people can find the rest of them from there. Fantastic. Sure. Thank you so much for your time and interest, gentlemen. Come to Boston. Crash at my house. Have a beer. Hey, careful what you suggest. <laughs> anytime, anytime. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the keys I'll, somewhere and I'll, I'll text you where you can find them. O open invitation. We are all over. Good Thank happen. you so much. <laughs> right, thanks, guys. Have a good night. Take okay, Thank see you. Bye now. Tapping on my window Devotion of a car, light of the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't.